Welcome to the Truth Lover webinar. Your host is Will Pye. This is a podcast presented by Love and Truth Party. Love and Truth Party is a self-organizing, self-replicating community and movement of love and awakening, a wisdom school facilitating and celebrating the true nature of the human being. We exist to empower the deep realization and integration of unitive consciousness of one human being and to inspire action in the world from this place as New Earth Ninjas. We do so in the spirit of play, holding the paradox that all is well, even and including all collective crises, while simultaneously being moved to act, to lessen suffering, and serve the creation of conscious culture and society. Our projects include distributing a million love letters from the universe, inviting people to realize love and care in these offerings and within the Happiness Acts and other resources found on loveandtruthparty.org and our social media in a giant social experiment of paying it forward and exploring what it is to be the change. We're also just launching our online courses. Uh, the two of those, uh, off the first off the rank are healing cancer, what you need to know, and cancer um, depression diagnosis, what you need to know. And all that said, we are delighted to be joined today by Shanti Zimmerman. Uh, Shanti is first and foremost a human, a tender-hearted, fierce advocate of full expression. She's being raised by four children, three of which are teenagers. She's movement-obsessed, and Shanti is also in deep communication with the plant nation. She belongs to the earth, believes in what cannot be seen, relationships are her religion, and she's obsessed with the sacred and the holy and what is right. Shanti is always learning. She's on the path of mastery in the areas that matter to her, love, clarity, integrity, embodiment, honesty, transparency, interdependency, and mutual indebtedness. And Shanti is a guide to those walking into who they know themselves to be. You can find out more about Shanti on beingshanti.com, and that's being-shanti.com. Shanti, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a real pleasure to be with you. I'm really happy to be here. That's beautiful. The whole thing. <laughs> it's, it's rather a nice way to frame a conversation, isn't it? And we ex chose a little topic. We were chatting just now, and it's quite a broad one. And I'm really personally actually fascinated by some of your perspectives. So I'm feeling learning happening for me already. And we were talking about embodiment, emotional freedom. And there was a particular experience that we sort of summed up as Dr. Handling doctors, I think we said. Um, so first and foremost, embodiment is a word that gets used quite a lot um, in the awakening space. Happily, it does get used these days. There is at least a, a sort of popular focus. Yeah, we're remembering we actually have bodies. <laughs> yeah, right. It's not just the transcendent arising right. above, which I know in my journey, that was a big mastery to yeah. begin. It was useful to, to yeah. learn to transcend. So tell me, what is embodiment when you're talking about this word? When you use the word embodiment, what is it for you? Um, I like that it came up before, but that for me, embodiment means I feel congruent within myself. Mm. Uh, some people would use the word alignment, but that's also a word that I feel is overused and has different connotations. And for me, congruent is a very clear term. Um, when I'm not embodied, I've spent a huge life, even that space you just talked about, you know, this transcendence is a disassociation from the, the idea that there's a body. It's, I'm out here. I'm not fully you know, into my feet all the way down into this body. Um, and while that's amazing and it's a really great experience, like you said, it's not congruent because I'm also human and a body that is an animal that is, that is instinctual, that moves without me needing to tell it what to do. Um, and, and when all of that is, so if I'm up here, I'm not completely congruent. I have to be completely connected. And for me, that's embodiment when there's congruency. And I spend a lot of my time being over here and like pulling myself back <laughs> come, come, or being out there and come back. There's an embodiment. You don't have to run from this experience. This, this is not something you have to be afraid of. Yeah, I, I like the way you described it earlier and you sort of referenced it a little bit there. 
the idea of being incongruent or disembodied of, of sort of feeling a little bit off center and having to pull yourself back as it were, or bring yourself back into. Yeah. I, it's, I, that's why I said, I, I miss myself. If I, I stay, yeah. if I stay incongruent for a long period of time, I start to miss myself, my own, my own, my own self. That's the only way I can talk. Like being at home completely. Like it's like the, it's just like this place clicks in. And then there's a complete congruency in my experience of myself, like on all the different layers and levels. Right. And you offered a nice distinction when we were speaking earlier that when we're in congruency, that's perceivable or, or, or recognizable to others that we're in communication with. Yeah. But if we're out of alignment or we're in, in our head, if, if, if that's the sort of one, one bit of languaging that works for you, then that is also recognizable. I can, I can give a really good example. So, mm -hmm. um, uh, my father died three months ago. So I'm in a deep, I, I can't tell. I, I'm going to say I'm in the middle. I don't know where the fuck I am. I'm in the thick of a transition. Right. Um, is it, I'm sorry. Is, I'm going to cuss a little bit. I hope that's Cussing okay. is fucking okay. Okay. Just I'm like, I won't stop. <laughs> so I'm just informing you. That won't not, that won't, it won't go away. Um, and um, having to, for me, part of what's incongruent in my experience is I have a, I can receive to a certain point and then it's like full stop. There's a disassociation from allowing receptivity. Um, and I have been needing to ask for help. I have been needing to say, I can't do this right now. I have to be very careful with my energy. I have to make sure that I'm being nourished as much as I'm giving because mm -hmm. I can give and give and give and give. I have an ultimate infinite research resource for that. Mm -hmm. But that can only go for so long before it really starts to deplete the body, right? Mm -hmm. The body is what's telling you now you need to slow down. Um, and so I was telling people around me, people who know me very well, hey, I need help. I need support. Can you please help me? But I was saying it not from a congruent place. I was saying it because I know that I need it. And I know that, but I'm also very afraid. And I have like all kinds of belief systems around asking for help and what that means. And so and not embodying that fear and the truth that like, I really need help. This is not, and, and also not like, you know, like it's, it's almost like in our culture too. And in our belief systems, if I'm not collapsed on the floor, needing to be taken away, you know, for medical help, um, we almost don't believe somebody would say, look, I'm really low. I need help. There has to be like some kind of outward sign. And so I, and I was getting frustrated because it felt like it wasn't, I would say I need help or, and it was kind of like, everybody's like, yeah, yeah, but you'll be fine tomorrow. Because that's how I, that's the, the congruency I had lived in until that point was that I'm okay. Everything's fine. Ultimately everything is okay. And living from that space, it's kind of like the detached, all is one. Everything's okay. Everything mm -hmm. is, can happen. It's no big deal. So when I'm saying I need help and there's a desperate need for help, but I'm living from that place of everything's okay. The communication with others did not happen until I just went Bluff! and landed smack in my body and could speak directly from that place of like, I need help. Yeah. I was going to say what I was hearing. It's like that, that part of us that needs help or that vulnerable part of us that wants help can't, I, I, speaking to my own experience, struggles to say, I need help. You know, so there's that sort of mental idea of, I need to say, I need help. I, this is a good idea. But it's not the needing help that's speaking to the needing of help. It's not that right. part of the experience. So I love that idea of sort of really landing in the body. And by the sounds of it, there was a bit of a uh, an outburst or, or a sort of a, a release of that 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 need for. Well, it becomes very vulnerable. It becomes very much like uh, it goes. It's not. It's a need, and it's very vulnerable. You know, it's not like I want help. I could use some help. I'll be okay if I don't get help. It's like, no, I need this. Mm -hmm. I need this right now. I need to be supported in ways that I haven't needed before. So, yeah, that, I mean, losing a parent is uh, a, a new, or losing your father is the first time you've ever had that experience. So I can. Well, in this way, uh, I had somebody ask me, "Have you ever, have you ever lost someone important to you, or you know, have you had any other loss in your life?" And I'm like, "Well, of course. This is the first time I lost my father." Mm -hmm. like this is new. So, um, and you're never the same because on the external, it looks like, Oh, life is the same, but you, it's a transition that doesn't, it kind of, it's, it's immediate, 
and it's forever. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've and never I'm lost. Still, I still don't know where where that is, right? Where that that place is. It was like I was blown. I became very old, very very old, and also very very small and young at the same time. Right. I can imagine so all the patterns that didn't serve me or my father are coming back up to be kind of, it feels like it's being rewired and that's where the doctor thing will also come in. Mm-hmm. Um, like, you know, I've done all the work and I've done all the meditation and I've done all the things and I have all the tools and blah, blah, blah. And that just went. <laughs> because if you want to be like pulled into the here and now, this death will do that. Grief and death will do that. And, um, uh, no permission required. <laughs> like it's just like, here's here's it is, and this is what you're gonna do, and you're gonna feel this, and that's how it's gonna be. And um, and it's uh, requiring me to slow down, very, 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 very slow. And so, and uh, then we can talk about grief because grief is something that is something we it seems culturally we run from it. Mm-hmm. We don't talk about it, and so like when my dad died, I started to speak about it. And I realized how uncomfortable it is for people and how people just don't understand. So what I noticed too in that is like birth, like kind of a, a deep illness and death are kind of like sweeped behind some door. Mm-hmm. Like how many people see birth or death before it happens in their own lives? It's so rare. Mm-hmm. And um, I think there's a shit ton of unmetabolized grief in the world. And I think that is our number one reason that there's so much suffering. Right. It comes to mind that wonderful show, Six Feet Under, where there was actually a representation of Mediterranean families and how they would wail and express and shout and rage and you know, mistresses and wives together. Or you know, It was really like a culturally endorsed and supported, uh, allowing that energy to move contrasted to the, perhaps the US especially, but I think it's Europe as well, where we sort of try and sanitize death and, and you can talk about it for a certain while, but then you can't talk about it. You should be over it by now, these sorts of ideas. Well, I've hit that point. It's three months, three and a half months. And I've hit that point where it's people are like, yeah, well, you can just get over it now. Right. I'm like, hey, this isn't really something you get over. Like, that's not really how it works. Uh-huh. <laughs> but okay. <laughs> And, and if there is a point of completion, who's to say it might not be 12 years or three months or six months or 10? Yeah, I yeah, mean, like, exactly. There is no, like, here's the time, right? I mean, mm-hmm. in the psychological world, uh, they were doing tests uh, about grief and they determined, I don't know who, but they determined that, okay, a year, right? In the psychology world, that a year is what it takes. And it just kept, and then they kept, it's six months. Yeah. And then it got smaller and smaller. And it, by the end, their report said, when someone dies within three weeks, you should that's, be able to move on with your life. That's like, crazy. Just, like, and after that point, they'll probably offer you SSRIs and consider you to be suffering from depression rather than actually going through Bingo. it. Exactly. That's what it was. It was a depression medicine. Uh-huh. Exactly. So is that what happened in, because part of the reason I wanted to chat with you, we'd been having a conversation about the possibility of a podcast. I've heard a lot of great things about you and embodiment and emotional freedom, of course, is a rich offering for everyone listening. And, and just to touch briefly, I reckon a lot of people listening will relate to something you touched on, which is that idea that with all the work that I've done, with all the meditation that I've done, with all the yoga that I've done, with all the therapy, all the plant spirit medicine, or I really shouldn't, should I? You know, there's that, so I can relate to that in myself and I'm sure it's like just really putting that elephant in the room out there that we're all humans learning and struggling at times and needing help at times. And I'm, I'm interested to continue that thread that we were on. Part of the reason we sort of, I felt let's do the podcast now was this beautiful post you offered on Facebook. And as I recall it, it was talking about being in a doctor's office and I've been in a few of those myself for various things over the years and reaching a point where, well, you tell me what happened. So, I mean, the very interesting thing about this particular doctor's office was the appointment wasn't for me. Uh huh. So it wasn't about me. I was there supporting my daughter. She needed to get, uh, she's going to New Zealand for a half a year. And so she needed to get like a clean bill of health. Mm-hmm. It was a very simple document that was like just like that she's mentally and physically sound of sound nature and isn't doesn't have any instabilities in her character 
physically and mentally. It, was, it would have been a very simple exam. The doctor was new. Our doctor sold his practice to her, so we'd never met her. Um, I didn't really like the doctor from the beginning. Like when she walked in the door, I was like, hmm. Just had a feeling. I was, um, but I continued to watch my daughter. And as soon as making sure my daughter was okay, that was like my main concern. So my daughter's energy and her facial, everything seemed fine. So she didn't look like she was upset. I wasn't totally okay with the way that the doctor asked things, but I was like, okay, we just need to get the piece of paper. There's no, nothing bad happening here. Um, my husband and I were both in the room and the doctor comes over and she, um, I was looking at her and she sits down and she leans across the desk and she'll look me in the eye. Come on right here. Look at me at Yeah, Now that's respectful. And I was like, <gasps> what <laughs> in the world? And so at this point I start to, I literally the sense was I was like a three-year-old little kid. Like my feet were hanging off the chair. That wasn't how I shrunk and she got wow. bigger. And I was like, that's the disassociation, right? It was like, as a child, when somebody would talk to me like that, I couldn't go anywhere. I, this is the emotional, right? This is the emotional trigger that I have lived through my life. There's so many connections here. Um, over time in my childhood, I was basically trained to disassociate because I thought that was the only choice I had, right? I had to sit and take it. And I couldn't complain and I couldn't rebel. I had to sit and take whatever was coming. And so as soon as I felt that happen, I was like, whoa, like I, it's like I just shrunk. And so then she's, she's talking at me and I'm looking up at her. I'm not really, I mean, we're eye level, but it feels like I'm looking up at her and she's like, you're not really happy about sending your daughter away. You feel you're really, really tense about this because you, you've chosen to send her away to New Zealand. And I was like, now uh, this is all taking place in, in German. So, which is not my mother language, but I am very fluent. I don't, it's not really an issue that she couldn't understand me, but, and, uh, I said, well, actually, no, I'm not sending her anywhere. She's making that choice and I'm supporting her. So I'm still in the trigger because the trigger is I'm trying to explain myself, right? I'm trying to prove that she's not right about me and all those things. I'm trying to look like, appear like I'm consciously there <laughs> when I'm not. I'm like, Ooh. if they did not feel comfortable, I didn't feel safe. Um, I was safe. Be clear, she was not threatening my life, but emotionally I didn't feel safe. Mm -hmm. And... Um, and she, what did she say next? She said, no, you're tense. You're tense and you don't like this decision. At the point I looked at my husband and I'm like, and I looked at him, she's like, she'll know, look at me. And I'm like, what the hell is happening here? And wow. so I go, you know what? I don't feel comfortable with you. I feel like you're really coming into my space. You're attacking me. You're making assumptions about me. This does not feel good. I don't like it. To which she looks to my husband and she's all, I don't understand. What did she just say? And I was like, oh my God. And, my, and this, like, I, I'm disembodied. I felt not in a body, kind of like, right? And at this point, my husband responds to her and he, he winds up saying, well, maybe you should ask my wife what's going on for her instead of telling her or assuming what's going on for her. And at this point, I stop eye contact. Like, I look down at the floor and there's this really sweet thing that says, just stay here. Stay in your body. Don't go. It's okay. You're safe to stay here. And I like instinctually, I don't look at her. I'm, I'm, and this is where I come into congruency with myself. And as I do that, um, I just looked up at her and I said, look, I'm done with this conversation. What do we need to do to get the paperwork done? And she goes in to go, well, let's look at this paper and right here. And she's talking like I'm a five-year-old. So now I'm in my body. I'm no longer telling myself the, the thought process. This isn't happening. She can't be talking to me like this. This isn't right. This shouldn't be happening. And that's the disassociation. And in my body, I feel, oh, no, this is happening. She really is talking to me like that. <laughs> like this is really happening. And without predetermined, premeditated anything, I just stood up and left. I just stood up and left. It was just like the, the clarity, the congruency just went, okay, goodbye. And right. it wasn't something that could be what I was sensing. It was like it had gone beyond the point of rational or there was some sort of power yeah. dynamic at play that your body didn't want to be a part of or that it wasn't right. true to be a part of. Exactly. And so I walk out to the car, leaving my husband and my daughter. 
And I sit in the car. My first feeling is I'm going to get in so much trouble. Uh-huh. I've been a bad girl. I've been naughty. Yes. Or, uh-huh. yeah. Because if and when I did rebel as a child, my parents took the side of the teacher or the doctor or the authority figure. Mm-hmm. Right? It was never like, Shanti, your, your feelings are valid. You're right. This isn't, you weren't treated well. You know, it was like, oh, how could you do that? This is so disappointing. It's so embarrassing. That kind of, of thing. Or worse, you know, I'd get in trouble, trouble. And um, so I was sitting there in the car and I just was like talking to myself, there's, there's, no, there's no trouble to get in. Like just really talking myself back into my body because I wanted to like run. And in the meantime, my husband, she pushes my husband out the door. I, I don't know what happened in between. Now I do, but at that point I don't. She just pushes him out the door. And my husband's very calm. He doesn't, he's not attacking her. You know, she was like, I'm sorry if she doesn't like that I'm so direct. And what he said was, you're not direct. You're uh, socially incompetent. And so she pushed him out the door and uh, he came in the car and as if to prove that she's not socially incompetent, she <laughs> pushing him out was perfect. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> so it was like, so hearing my husband, I was like, okay, so he, there's a validation. It feels okay. There's validation. I feel a little bit more safe. I, I can stay in my body. I can stay in my body. I can stay in my body. And we start driving like two seconds later, I turn back. I see my daughter and I told him to pull over. And as soon as he pulled over, she just started to shake and cry. Mm-hmm. So she metabolizes immediately the experience that just happened. Right. And both me and Cass were like, oh, thank God that she has that ability. And she's like, I don't know why I'm so upset. And we said, it's okay. You don't have to. It's okay. She's like, all I know is that I feel safe right now. And I didn't feel safe in there. Mm-hmm. And I said, that's all you need to know. You know, that, that that's all you need to know. And so for me, what happened was, and my husband said, you know, Shanti, I've seen you react, obviously, and respond to situations all that we've been together for 20 years. He said, this is the first time I've seen you instantly react to something. Because normally I'm in that fight of disassociation and trying to talk myself out of what I know is happening in the moment. Right? There's somebody being mean to me. Oh, but that can't be happening. There's no mean people in the world. All is one and all is beautiful and bliss goopy soupy. Right? Oh, this is just me bringing this to myself for a learning, blah, blah. No, this is a mean person and I don't have to sit here and take it. And so as I'm sitting in the car, I was like, oh, shit. So I have gotten myself into interesting situations in my adult life because of this pattern. Situations that were not uh, emotionally and some of them not physically safe. And I would freeze because my conditioning, my like, in my visceral body was you have to take it. It's best if you stay silent. Um, that's 98%. The other 2% that I thought was available to me was that I had to stand up and like fight and scream and tell them to fuck you and you know, bravado and puffed up kind of machismo kind of stand up for yourself. You know, this bullshit that we're sold about how we're supposed to stand up for ourselves instead of learning to stand for ourselves and to respect stand ourselves. Stand in first. ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. And so I was like, oh my God. So if those are your two options, I have two options. I, I close, I disassociate and find safety in that. Or uh, I have to be a raving, screaming lunatic. Those are my only two choices. That's what, what they were, right? And in that moment of just leaving the doctor's office, I can just leave. I can take my body with me. I don't have to leave my body in the situation anymore. Like I'm not a little kid. Right? Little kids, they don't have a choice. Like somebody also on that post said, you know, nobody can make you do anything. I said, that's only the case. And, and some adults actually can't either. But a child can never just get up and be like, screw you, parent or teacher. Mm-hmm. You know, like that's just not acceptable culturally. And there's a lot of layers to that. Um, but as an adult, it was like mind blowing to me that like, I can just leave. And this sounds so simple. You know, and there, there's an opening there where I could feel really ashamed for myself. Like, how did I not know that? But because I know my story, I know where I come from. I'm like, fuck, this is amazing. And I can go back to each of those moments in my life where I stayed and give myself the option. You could leave and you would be fine. And so like a whole option of all kinds of options opened up in that I can just leave. And that's probably my most powerful way to handle anything that doesn't... Not anything doesn't feel comfortable, but I don't have to be confrontational to get my point across. So it, it sounds like, though it wasn't 
uh, you, know, you offered the disassociating narrative that this is an opportunity to, it sounds like ultimately that's true as well, that in this there was a really profound opportunity for you to learn and embody something that hadn't been embodied previously. Yeah. And it wasn't but, conscious, right? It was totally by grace. Uh-huh. Like it was, I wasn't like, ooh, here's an opportunity. It was just like, it rose up by itself. And maybe, maybe because of all the work I have done, the opportunity opened, whatever. Like, I don't like to analyze it too much, but it didn't come from like, this is what's happening. So when I shared afterwards, it sounds like I, that was the, when, I, when you tell a story in hindsight, it sounds like you had that epiphany there. It wasn't, it was after the fact. And mm-hmm. after I had already gone through the like, oh my God, that time that I was sexually assaulted, I could just walk away. That time that I was kept from leaving, I could have just walked away. That time I was in the rainforest with those weird fucking people, I could have just walked away. Mm-hmm. And like all this empowerment started to flood through me. I don't have to fight. And I wasn't running. I also wasn't flighting. Like it wasn't, you know, people say there's, there's fight, flight, and freeze. Well, freeze was my main choice. But there's another one. And that's just get up and leave. Like no hoopla, no emotional chaos. Just this is a no for me. So it sounds like there's a a fundamental connection between embodiment and empowerment when we're in our body with the body's wisdom, with the body, with the body's knowing there's a, there's a, there's a depth of power that comes with that. And I certainly, when I heard the story, I was like, Oh wow. So probably they suggested something outrageous. And, um, and at that point, Shanti and her power and consciousness chose to walk out, but I'm hearing it was something a little bit more subtle, a little bit more deeply embodied. And, Part, part of the piece of that, there's two pieces that I feel I want to sort of extract for our listeners and viewers. One was around how emotional integration can work and, and how we maybe make ourselves, um, you know, if, it, if it is grace or, or an accident, we can make ourselves accident prone, perhaps, with our meditation, with our yoga, with our coming into our body as a practice. So perhaps we can we can start with that. And the other thing I want I want to touch on at some point with you is just like how to be with doctors because we're living in a culture, of course, where we have a whole heap of potions and devices and things that don't work that are being um, pushed. I'm very open to that. I have a daughter who had an autoimmune disease. I've had chronic illness myself, so I have a lot of experience with that. Cool. Well, let's start with the emotional integration and, and, then, and then jump into that conversation because. This is a part of your area of expertise, as I understand it, and part of one of the ways that you serve people in, in dialogue and one-on-one work and so on, and with your Facebook posts and so on. So what is there more that you can say around the emotional integration? I, I use this word integration rather than healing uh, in a nod to, to Michael Brown. I, I like the word metabolism. Metabolism, emotional mm-hmm. metabolism. I like mm-hmm. that. So this is a sort of processing Mm -hmm. digesting right so until that moment in the doctor's office i had not metabolized that trigger Mm -hmm. the trigger would happen i would disassociate that was the pattern in my life and i um most important was in the recognizing it was not to make myself wrong that i should have known it i don't know what i know until i know it Mm -hmm. that's it done deal no back forward sideways looking at it because otherwise it becomes a weapon against myself and I will re-trigger the trigger and it hooks back in instead of going, holy fuck, I'm free. Mm-hmm. Oh my God. And that is a very tender and what feels like a fragile space because you know, like there's a lot of shaking loose of the body. There's a lot of metabolizing all those times that you were in these situations that you felt like you couldn't get out mm-hmm. and you were stuck. And all of a sudden you begin to realize I can get out. And your mind's going to want to go, yeah, but you didn't then. Look at where you failed here. Well, at least mine. I don't know what anybody else's mind is doing. My mind is like golem. It's a little bit of an asshole. So. <laughs> I, reckon we, I reckon many of us can relate. And by the way, if you write a book at any point soon, holy fuck, I'm free, might yeah. be a really, a really great title. <laughs> so good. <laughs> Tell me that later. I'll write it down. <laughs> um, I'm like, oh, okay. Um, so. Like, and the, the whole idea of emotional integration means that there ha- there's a time frame. There isn't. It's like metabolism is instant. And then there's the, mm-hmm. like, allowing the nutrients to sink in. Mm-hmm. To allow that metabolized nutrition 
to become embodied in you. Mm. So I'm open. The trigger may come. I may repeat the pattern. That's okay. I'm not like, yay, I'm free from it forever. And I'm never going to fall back in that. That's another crock of shit. Mm -hmm. It's like, I've been doing this since I was two and a half probably, or even earlier. So this disassociation thing is very, but what's happening is rapidly. I see where I disassociate really weirdly. Like somebody will say one word and I'm like trying to get away from the word. Wait, stay here. I found is staying in my body is where I'm the safest, most clear, most aware, most present than when I disassociate. And when I disassociate, uh, it haunts me. It's like I mentally go into this place of like, I should have, could have, would have said, done. There's a whole lot of different stories. I should have said this to the doctor. I should have punched her in the face. I should have done this or whatever, those things. And because it was just clean and clear, that was very, very, very minimal. Mm-hmm. Very minimal because it's being metabolized. The process is happening. The enzyme, if you will, was the moment of realization. It's like, you know, there's like stuck something and the enzyme was like, oh, I can leave. And now metabolize. all that pain of freezing. I have to stay here. I can only stay safe in this way. This is the only logical way for me to, you know, it becomes linear at that point. This is the only way for me to stay safe, disintegrates and metabolizes. So is it, is it true to say when I hear that the, the disassociation is, is a movement of consciousness or attention into the mental body, into, into thinking? into narrative is that generally how you would experience it or how you would uh, give meaning to this as opposed to being with the sensation with the felt sensation in the in in the body it's weird because if i I go for me when i'm disassociate i'm not present so it's a lot it's and it's not a lot of mental activity in the moment of it in the moment of disassociation i disappear Literally. Okay. So it's a fuller disassociation, right? Yeah, there's, an, there's an awareness this is happening. Mm-hmm. Right. And then I try to be There's always this coming, wanting to come back, but it's so fucking uncomfortable. So I had this experience not that long ago of being uh, sleeping on a couch with a, there was a bunch of people in the house on a couch with a young man. Um, in the middle of the night, he grabbed my pelvis and pulled it into his pelvis. And that silence, you just, Felt that was me going poof. Uh-huh. Bye. Like, and the thought process it goes so quickly. So what the thought process would be: This isn't happening. This can't be. This no. He knows it. This, this, that. You know, it's like there's this trying to not be honest with myself. It's keeping secrets from myself. Right. This isn't happening. And then what happened for like the next 24 hours with this group of people was me feeling like I, like I, I wasn't here. Mm-hmm. Like, what the hell? Because almost like forgetting that the thing happened. And then I came home and about 10 days later, it started to metabolize. And then I have to go through that whole process. And it takes a lot longer to metabolize that than it would have for me to just get up and leave. Mm-hmm. And so if I'm hearing you correctly, this is a, this is a, a learned mechanism, a learned survival technique from earlier years that's playing itself out right. unconsciously. And yet, of course, in the experiencing, it becomes a little more conscious. It becomes a little bit more in your conscious awareness. Right. And just because there's consciousness, that's important. Just because you're consciously aware of it does not mean you can move out of it. Sometimes right. that's the place people get looped. They're like, I can't do anything, but I'm seeing that I can't do anything. Oh, I'm such a piece of shit. I should know better. I'm an adult. You kind of like go to this thing instead of going, whoa, and being very gentle with yourself in that awareness, like seeing it and going and being so kind and so soft and be like, of course, of course, this is how you're handling this. Mm -hmm. This is how you know, this is what you learned. Mm -hmm. Of course, this is how it's being done. That's when the opportunity opens up to see it in a different way. So I had enough of those where I was kind to myself where when this happened, it was like, oh, I can see this and I don't have to make myself wrong for seeing it. First, I don't make myself wrong for doing it. I don't make myself wrong for seeing it. I allow those, all of that, that, uh, and most importantly, I do what I need to do for my well-being. Mm -hmm. So this person was a person of authority, a person people look up to, a spiritual teacher, um, I feel like an old lady next to this person. Um, 
And it was like, there's always that place of like, who do I owe what to? What story do I owe to whom? Right? Do I need to tell the whole community? Do I need to, what do I need to do? And every time it came back to myself, it was like, take care of yourself. Make sure that you are okay, that your well-being is okay. You don't owe anybody your story. You don't owe anybody your metabolism. You don't owe anybody an explanation. You don't need to prove anything to anyone. Like your emotional uh, integrity, your emotional literacy belongs to you and only to you. There's, there's three just really profound threads in that that I want to, to articulate. One is that being kind and gentle with ourselves, which for me is, is a, a learning of parenting ourselves, essentially, you know. We, I call it reparenting, yeah. Right. I mean, we were all uh, badly parented or less than perfectly parented to some degree or other, however remarkable and wonderful our parents were. So there's that recognition of reparenting of the requirement. And of course, it or perhaps not of course, but it seems fairly straightforward and obvious that a basic gift that a parent can give a child is unconditional love or unconditional loving presence and support. And so learning to, to bring that into ourselves, to give that to ourselves, uh, I just love how you took us through that. And, and then really the crux of that to focus on your well-being. Like that's, that's actually a really outrageous idea culturally that all mm. I need to do right now is just focus on what feels good for me, my, my fundamental well-being. Yeah. Particularly as a mother, I would imagine. You know, I, think, uh, I think as anybody in the world today, <laughs> I don't Thank think you. being a mother is, makes that special. Uh, I think as anyone in the world today, it's particularly more, most important to me because I'm on the internet, if I'm going to be honest. Um, the internet is an interesting creature in and of itself. It's like mm -hmm. judge, jury, and executioner in five minutes. Mm -hmm. um, it's, uh, it's, it's, and so that's the place to be so clear about like my well, if I'm not well in my being, then I'm not well in my being and that's the most important thing. Mm. And I've been in situation, I've had, I've been on the other side of malicious, malicious intent. It's another thing we don't want to believe is true. It is. There are people out there with a malicious intent. There are really horrible and atrocious things happening in the world. And being on the other side of that is so painful. And that's since I was small. So it's so painful. It's like a, it hurts my soul. Yeah. Right. And so, um, when I go back to, I don't know anybody, anything and not like, Oh my God, I believe in mutual indebtedness and interdependency at a level that most people would build people's minds. Like we need each other. We need each other so desperately and so deeply and so intimately. Um, but if I'm not in my well being, I can't help you in your well being. Like mm -hmm. that's not, it's not possible. And that is where being a mom makes it is so clear to me when I am fucked up. Your capacity is diminished, right? It's, exactly. It's and I can, I can bring the capacity to be there for my kids, but then what suffers? Usually it's my physical body. Right. So it's, it's finding that place of my well-being and, and does telling, let's say, like you've been the victim of something. Does telling my story help my well-being? Does going public with it help my well-being? Does persecuting the person help my well-being? Because if you can't answer yes to those questions, you don't do it. You do what's necessary to keep yourself well because you don't know anybody that story. I think it, it's an idea that many people listening and watching will have heard. And I can say myself, I'm familiar with prioritizing my well-being. It's one of the things that I teach and share and, of course, need to learn. And what you've offered there in that example is how crystal clear we can become, we can get to really make that the guide being well in our being not what's right not what's a good idea not what mum or dad would have said not what culture would say not what the internet would say not even what the people you love and trust would say right and that's that's an extraordinary degree of personal responsibility that thank is you yes absolutely very, very unusual i think mm. it's not easy I, I like to say it's very simple 
It's simple mm-hmm. to say. It's like one of those weird memes. Right? <laughs> it's simple to say, but it's a whole lot of fucking work. Yeah, right. And, and dedication and devotion. And again and again coming back and being like, like, I'm questioning my own agendas. Am I doing this for me? Am I doing this because I want somebody to think a certain way? And if it's not for me, then I don't need to be doing it. Including being there for my kids or being there for my husband. Am I doing this for me? Yeah, I'm doing this for me because I get something for, from it. My, like, I think a big wound that we all carry is giving, 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 giving mm-hmm. without receiving, mm-hmm. without that receiving back, right? Oh, I, and if you get resentful in your intimate relationships, it's because you feel like you're giving and not getting back. And so how do you loop that back? When I am the mother that I have worked so hard to be, that fills me. There's a nourishment there. When I'm there for my kids, when I'm like, it's totally fine how you feel, how you feel is valid. And at the same time, absolutely not. That shit in between us, that's not okay for me. Mm-hmm. This isn't going to work like that. This matters too much to me for you, for us to be like flimpant with each other. That doesn't work. Mm-hmm. Get very clear and very precise about what I feel is a, is a worthwhile relationship. Mm-hmm. Allowing them to come back, be with whatever they have, um, and make sure that what I want from them, I'm offering. I cannot demand respect from my children if, if they're not, if I'm not giving them that fully. Right. And there's a, there's a, it's a bit of a cliche almost, but it's a powerful metaphor. I think that, because what we're, what we're speaking of is quite subtle and challenging, I think for the Western mind, uh, my mind, many minds in many respects, I think. And the idea of the oxygen mask on the plane, we, we get very easily. We get that. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. I've got to put that on myself first because that allows me to help. It's like, I can't give well-being unless this is the metaphor that comes up every time. Right. It's a, it's a cliche, but I think it's a cliche for good reason because we, we, we get it in a way. And what we're pointing to is that oxygen being well-being that, that Mm -hmm. feeling of connection to source or connection to the truth of our wholeness or however we want to language that. Sorry. I just remember another piece of, of embodiment is understanding that it's inner. So it's an inner focus. Embodiment is inner focused. Anytime you're externally focused, you're not embodied. You're not congruent with yourself because you're, it's, I have to do this for them. I ha- and this is where we have all been trained. It goes, and you're, you're going to be hard fit to find who's at fault because this is ancient history. Mm-hmm. Right, that we we were, you know, we were a long time a slave. We were conditioned to be a slave culture, mm-hmm. right? And so that's really deeply in all of our ancestry. And we could say that's entirely a present reality as well. But that's a, yeah. another conversation. Exactly. But. but so it's like if you're externally focused, you're not home. And we have been taught to be externally focused. Give mm-hmm. the well, give up your well-being, die and wither inside and don't do anything that's good for you and just give, give, give to other people. Mm-hmm. Oh man, this runs deep in me. Like super, it's also, it's my nature for sure to give. Mm-hmm. But it's also a really deep thing that I give so much I forget. Like I can be so strong that I hurt myself. It, it feels like maybe a helpful distinction. Like there, there is something that is if there's a cleanness or a purity in the giving, if it's coming from an overflowing place, it feels like it is Thank regenerative. Yes. Uh huh. And and then the giving is receiving as in the lovely St. Francis. Um, and then we don't know prayer. how to be honest when we're empty. Right. And that's where the, the willingness or the conscious receiving and asking for help to go back to where our conversation began and like how to do that in a way that's skillful and, and is congruent. Right. To speak to that need that I'm, in need of help right now. I mean, I know that's, wow, that's definitely an edge for me. I did it recently for the first time in in a long, long time. And it was like, I I appreciate you speaking also to that avoidance or maybe avoidance is not, not making ourselves wrong. Another ancient wound. We we cannot be whole all the time. Mm -hmm. We can't. And I like to be in nature. I like to watch nature and nature always has ebb and a flow. Mm-hmm. And we have um, like villainized the ebb. Mm-hmm. We have villainized it like it's the word. You got to be in flow all the time. I'm like, ah, have you ever like sat in the forest? Like even the forest doesn't do that. Uh-huh. And 
it's this being able to pull back and realize when you need to replenish mm-hmm. and that you need to take that space and that time. In, in history, we were supported by a village. Mm-hmm. And now it's like we try to get be supported by one or two or three people. But we used to have the support of a large, much larger group. And I think that we all feel that. Like, you know, we have this deep story. I have to do it all myself. I have to be a complete unit in and of myself. I am the one. I am God. I am embodied the universe. You know, these kinds of concepts kind of mess with our knowing that we're supposed to be connected, that we are indebted to each other, that we need each other, and that that's necessary for our growth. It, it feels like there's a, a, a paradox on the one hand. It feels that one of the problems or dysfunctions of our society is the deep uh, individualization and atomization and separation and not being in that community. And at the same time, we're speaking about so, so you know, movement towards community and interdependence and asking for help and co-parenting and parenting as a village and so on is, is a sort of uh, progressive movement. And at the same time as that being a problem, we're also talking about a radical self-reliance in terms of that inner connection, in terms of you being fully responsible for your connection with your well-being and my being fully responsible for my connection with my well-being. Yes, and this is what we did in tribes. Uh-huh. And it was supported. Right. So we're you all in the same game of each of us being personally responsible for our well-being. Yes. And supporting each other in that responsibility. Right. That's what tribes do. That's, that's beautiful. I just love how we've given some clarity around that because our minds often struggle with these apparently contradictory aspects. So Mm -hmm. it's this sort of simultaneity of being open and vulnerable and in our power of personally being responsible for that. Well, we couldn't survive in a a tribe if we weren't all taking responsibility for ourselves. Mm -hmm. We need to count on the person next to us taking responsibility for themselves. Meaning if they needed help and they said they needed help, I'd be like, of course I'm going to help you mm-hmm. because you're, you need that. And, and if I help you and when I go down, you're going to help me. There's much more of that aspect of like, I'm going to help you be, be true to yourself because we can't survive otherwise. And, and there there's a bringing together of, of two uh, ideas or memes that are especially used to divide in, in American political discourse, personal responsibility and helping those who need help. And you can see in that little example, the two actually don't need to be contradictory, but are complementary. We can Mm -hmm. be be totally responsible for ourselves and help those people that need help and to be personally responsible for themselves as well. Yeah. I'm just aware of time and there's there's little threads that we could explore from from that alone. There was was something quite rich I felt around the, um, the, the doctor conversation or the, perhaps more broadly dealing with figures of authority, but I think it would be helpful to, to narrow in on the healthcare system. Just to offer a brief bit of context, one of the missions of Love and Truth Party is to empower people to create their own health and healing and well-being, and particularly focusing in on people who have been diagnosed with cancer or depression. They've been two of my main teachers. And I'm really interested to hear your thoughts and insights around how to navigate uh, a, a corrupted system so very often we've got doctors who are, by the sounds of it, you've got a pretty extreme example in recent experience. Generally, my experience of doctors and nurses is it's clear how much they want to help. It's clear that they're healers in, in, in a deep and fundamental way. And yet they're operating within a system and a philosophy that causes them to say shit that might cause me harm. Right. And so how... And Switzerland has a very interesting, because there's no, there's the Sioux culture doesn't exist here. Right? Like you're, a doctor cuts uh-huh. off the wrong foot, but you don't get sued. There's insurance for that. And so doctors are definitely placed on a different kind of pedestal, right? Than um, they would be in the States where people can sue them for doing the, the slightest mistake because I don't know, they're human. I, mean, I don't want them to cut off my wrong foot either, but we forget to look at these people as like human beings. Um, and what's really interesting is like my patterns. So I can advocate for my children very easily. It comes very natural. Advocating for myself is a whole nother ball of wax. Mm-hmm. So if somebody were to watch me, how I advocate for my kids and how I advocate, they would be like, is that even the same human being? Because right. my triggers are mine, but who I am as a, who I, like who I really am and who I've worked to be is more reflective in how I advocate for them. But there's still this little part of me that says little Shanti doesn't deserve that same advocacy. 
because mm-hmm. nobody, nobody advocated for her. Mm-hmm. There was no advocacy on her behalf. And so it's easier for me to advocate for others than for myself. It's just something that I know to be true and I'm so open for it to change and it is shifting and changing, but I think it's important that I hold the space for both of those spaces. Cause what I'm about to say is going to sound like I have my shit together. <laughs> I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, you do and you don't, right? Moments of shit right. togetherness and moments of not. Exactly. So my daughter had an autoimmune disease and she was in and out of the hospital with infusions for a very, very long time. And she had two different symptoms. So one was in her eye and one was in her joints. And we had to go to different specialists and they weren't really symbiotic. So there was a lot of advocating that needed being, including what medications to use now. I was uh, in medical school and I met my husband and I never finished. So I did work in an emergency room for six years. I have some medical background. And so I see, I can see, I see the humanity of that whole profession. And I have also seen like really fucked up shit from many different directions where I'm just like, whoa, dang. And so in that space, I don't have as much issues advocating, but teaching my daughter to advocate for herself and make her own decisions. So she was diagnosed when she was four. And from about six months, after six months, after we understood what it was, she began to help in making the decisions. And does she want medication? Does she want immunizations? Does she want the cancer treatment stuff? Does she want the homeopathic treatment stuff? What does she... Like there was times she made decisions. My husband and I were like, oh shit, but it's her body. And we were just like, okay, she has all the information. This is what she wants to do. I'm going to trust her in that. And there were many times I had to change. I was, there was one time, uh, my kids were all really small at the time and I wasn't as fluent in the language here. And this doctor came in with another doctor and they like, it, like they literally pushed me into a corner and were telling me I had to do a certain kind of treatment for my daughter. And what kind of mother am I? If she's, you know, these are all the risks that I would take if I didn't put her on that medication, right? That these, 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 these things could happen. I said, yeah, well, who's responsible for all the side effects that that medication is? Is it me or is that you for giving it to her? Like, where are we going with this conversation? Like, you know, and both these grown men who are like the God of whatever, just like, what the hell? And they wanted to talk to my husband. Oh. So I have the added benefit of being that having that experience, being a woman in a body um, and just staying clear to like, what is right for her well-being? What is right for your well-being? It might not be what the doctors tell you. And there was a very many years of that. And then my daughter, when she was 13, she came to me and I was sitting outside. It's clear. She said, mom, I'm done. And I'm like, with what? You know, we were injecting her every day, uh, every week in her leg. She was on medication that made her pukey and didn't feel good. We were in, all different kinds of therapies. And it was just like, that's your life. You know, that's what you do. It's back and forth all the time. And she's like, I'm just done. Uh, I don't want to take any more shots. Uh, she said the names of the things that she was taking. I'm like, okay. I said, well, you know what they said to us, you know, that you can't just go cold Turkey that when you get stable, then we have to, da-da-da-da. she's like, I know I'm done. I said, are you sure? She's like, yeah, I'm done. I'm like, okay. So I waited for three months. I didn't call. I like canceled all appointments, canceled all things, whatever. And then I called the hospital and the team. I said, Ayla's not coming back. They're like, what? (laughs) I'm like, yeah, she stopped taking her medication. She can't do that. Oh my God. I'm like, well, actually she did that. We did that. It's been three months. (laughs) And they're like, with all due respect, Mrs. Zimmerman, Ayla cannot possibly know the long-term ramifications of her choice. And I said, you know what? you're right. And neither can you, and neither can I. And that was the end. And she's been in remission. She's 16 now. That was a pretty powerful, you've got your shit together story, Shanta. (laughs) And that's beautiful to hear that she's in remission. (laughs) Yeah. There's, there's so much in that. And I love the question to really pull that out that who is responsible for the side effects, because that that movement or that uh what's the the language the the posture or, or the the strategy or the ploy to say well oh you mean the fear tactics yeah will you take responsibility <laughs> if it yeah. goes wrong if she gets this it's like well will you take responsibility if the medication goes wrong like who i think that's a really practical question to actually open up those conversations with doctors it's part of my interest is how do we like so many times people in the hospital are made sicker 
by the pharmaceutical interventions. And I saw that firsthand. I've had people that I love die very quickly. Um, I'm not saying that like my husband had leukemia when he was a kid. I'm super happy he did chemotherapy. I'm glad that he's, you know, it's not that, that it's evil and it's wrong. It's, it's not black and white. And no, I had brain surgery and may not be here now. <clears throat> Excuse me. If I hadn't had that, I'm an optimist. I like to think I would be anyway, but so I recognize the great value of that system. Mm -hmm. And simultaneously there are things that were said that, um, quite possibly would have killed me by now if I'd taken right. their advice. And on the sheer stats, I, I was looking into this recently, like trying to get the precise figure of iatrogenic deaths in, in the US as one example. It's very hard, but it's, it's somewhere in the region of 250,000 to 500,000 people go into a hospital in the US each year and die from something other than what they went in there to have treated. Now, if that's not a crisis, if that's not uh, something that we should be looking at really, 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 really deeply, then I don't know what it would take. So well, it was like my husband went in, he broke uh, like this part of his finger, mm -hmm. you know, when he calls me from the hospital, he's like, I'm at the hospital. I'm like, what? I'm on my way. He's like, no, no, it's okay. It's just my finger. I said, okay. And he told me what happened. And he said, the doctor wants to, to do surgery right now. And I'm like, oh, I said, I can hear it in your voice. What's going on? And he's like, I don't know. It just feels weird. Like, he's like, he's like, the doctor's like, it's not necessary. And then he got somehow excited about doing the surgery. I said, well, you come home, just come home first. Like, it, you know, if they, they can do surgery tomorrow, it's not like you have to make this decision right now. It's like, shit, thank you for reminding me, right? So he came home and um, I said, show me the thing. I said, oh, you're going to be fine. You don't need surgery for this. Not that I have an expertise. I just have a certain knowing. Mm -hmm. He's like, are you sure? But that little worm that that doctor implanted into his brain haunted him until his finger was all the way healed even. Mm-hmm. It haunted him that he didn't get the surgery that, that maybe that, you know, cause like this part of his finger didn't go completely straight at the end. Uh, you know, it's now just like that a little bit. And I'm like, you think surgery would have fixed that? I, I don't think that would have been what it was. But, but just these little worms of doubt or these little worms of like alarm or fear can cause more problems than even the, the pharmaceuticals. Yeah. I, I was just to, to speak to that within my own context, the, decision to have surgery was two years after diagnosis. So I took that time to explore all the psychospiritual healing modalities. And for me to actually reach a point where it made sense to sort out the physical, having a sense or a knowing that the psychospiritual or subtle energy aspects or whatever had been largely resolved. Beautiful. That was my sense. So that, that knowing is, is so important the, totally. the knowing of your daughter the knowing of your husband as he called you your knowing and how you experience that so we have this this intelligence this heart intelligence our intuitiveness or our, you make our such a good feeling. point too because i think it's super important the 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 soft skill kind of things that you talk about the psychosomatic the psychospiritual things are so important right so i take two my brother-in-law and my husband decided to get their vasectomies at the same time not in the same room as some sort of bizarre. Well, actually, the same, the same doctor, same time, because okay, it was like cool. I think they got it. Anyway, so they, <laughs> <laughs> it was just, they went the same day together. And my husband's brother was very—you could feel—he was very, very grounded and accepting of his choice. Just very like, this is my choice. This mm -hmm. is what I want. My husband was a little bit. It was static. There's a little bit of this, but he's like, I don't, I got four kids. I don't want more. It was kind of like, it, it was a logical linear decision for him, but in his body, it wasn't a complete integrated metabolized experience. Mm -hmm. And so two days later, Michael's fine. My husband grows like a third ball of mass inside of his balls because he's having like this reaction of not having accepted and made peace with the, the, the procedure prior to having the procedure done. And then he, and he, he went through it, but he had to go through it after with right. complications if you will so that's always a super fascinating i love that particular because it, they, it was so clear that, that there's it's such a big piece if you're going to get chemotherapy if you're going to take the pharmaceuticals then it's best to not be like fuck you chemotherapy but be like absolutely chemotherapy thank you for coming into my body thank you body for working with chemotherapy absolutely Absolutely. Such a beautiful, powerful point that our placebo effect can be applied consciously in 
whatever direction we wish. So yeah, the surgery for me was a wonderful adventure and a very exciting thing. Something I was very grateful to have access to. A friend of mine sings as she ingests the chemotherapy. She she sings and appreciates the powerful healing that's occurring. So uh, that's, that's just um, one of many golden threads and one of many powerful points that you've shared with us today, Shanti. I'm really grateful and I feel that our viewers and listeners are going to gain a lot from what we've discussed and explored. So I'm very grateful for you giving your time and journeying as you have such that you can share as you have done with us. So thank you. And I, I want to mention your website cause I'm sure people, um, it's will... better if they find me on Facebook. My website's very old. Okay. So Shanti Zimmerman on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And we'll have those links in the, um, where we're able to put links. This, of course, comes out on multiple platforms. But okay. um, so Shanti Zimmerman, thank you so much for sharing your wisdom. It's been a real joy. I've learned a lot and I hope to connect with you perhaps in Switzerland or somewhere in the world in, in real yeah. time sometime. Yeah, that'd be great. Thank you, Shanti. And thank you to our viewers and listeners. If you've enjoyed this production and would like to support the creation of more similar programming, and feel resonance with the call to be of service to an emergent human culture, please join us. You can download love letters in multiple languages from the website. You can sign up for our newsletter, uh, watch other podcasts. You can like and follow us on Facebook, of course, Twitter and Instagram, and even consider a financial gift at loveandtruthparty.org. This is a labor of love, and we do require that financial support to sustain what we do. So please do consider that option. Thank you to all our existing supporters and contributors. Together we are creating kind, conscious, courageous human community.